Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. What a powerful emotional exchange between Jesus of Nazareth and Nicodemus the Pharisee. And just so you know, that little midnight meeting that you just witnessed is recorded in the Bible. They did have that discussion. But a casual reading of the Bible account will not give you the same artistic expression created by the writers and producers of The Chosen. And that's where this video footage comes from, episode seven. I don't know how many of you have been able to watch the entire first uh, season. If not, I recommend it. I highly recommend it. It's, it's just an amazing account of the life of Jesus, and there's a lot more to come. Now, I showed you that particular clip because I wanted you to hear Jesus' response to Nicodemus when Nicodemus said to him, unlike people living in the Old Testament in Moses' day, our people are not dying of snake bites. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I didn't come to overthrow the Roman government, which is what you're looking to do. Nicodemus said, you know, we're, we're dying from oppression, from Roman tyranny. Jesus said, that's not my mission. That's not why I'm here. I have come to set you free from sin and from spiritual death. That's what I'm all about. And then he went on to give Nicodemus what I like to call the hallmark verse of the Christian faith. It's found in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, not just one group of people, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting or eternal life. Again, that verse, that one life-changing, life-altering statement comes from the Gospel of John. And for the last month now, we've been taking a close and careful look at Jesus through the eyes of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I mentioned this to you three weeks ago in lesson number one, but John's record is different than the other three synoptic Gospels. In the very first verse of the very first chapter, immediately John begins to lay out clear evidence of the divinity of Jesus. He lets us know that Jesus is the Son of God. And he carries that exact same theme throughout his entire gospel. Gets all the way to the end. And he says, these things are written. In other words, the whole reason that I have taken the time to put this gospel together is so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, that's the key. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. Jesus wasn't just another holy man, another rabbi with a different interpretation of religion. He was not just another miracle worker, someone who told a bunch of interesting stories. He was, in fact, the Son of the living God. 
And John said, when you believe that, if you can embrace it, if you can get that down in your heart, then you will receive the undeniable promise of eternal life with the Father when this one is over. Now, right around 90% of John's gospel is unique to John. And by that I mean the majority of what he writes in his gospel is not found in any of the other three. John doesn't include the record of Jesus' human birth. You won't read anything about the Christmas story in the Gospel of John. It doesn't tell about the manger scene or the, uh, the shepherds or the wise men. He doesn't talk about Jesus' early childhood like some of the other Gospels do. He doesn't mention the temptation in the wilderness or the famous Sermon on the Mount. And this might come as a surprise to you, but John's Gospel doesn't list one single parable that Jesus taught. Jesus told 32 kingdom of God life lessons which became the highlight of the synoptic gospels and John doesn't include a single one of them. And that's because by God's design John showcases Jesus as the one who was, who is, and is to come. You see, John's Jesus is the Jesus with a name above every other name. The Jesus who one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I promise you, on the authority of God's word, that will happen. No exceptions. There's coming a day when every single person will acknowledge and declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so my recommendation is you do it now, today, if you haven't already. Sooner the better. There's absolutely no reason to wait any longer. Now is the day to acknowledge, now is the time to understand that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. And John goes to a lot of trouble to get that information to us. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. Did Jesus claim to be God? Did Jesus profess equality or identity with God the Father? You better believe he did, especially in the Gospel of John. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, oftentimes Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And as we've learned in previous lessons, he did share in our humanity. He came to earth as the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And for a while there, he did keep his divinity a secret. But make no mistake, Jesus fully operated in the power and the authority of Almighty God. And on at least seven different occasions, seven occasions in the Gospel of John, And that's how John chooses to present Jesus to us as the Son of God. And so scattered throughout the Gospel of John, at least seven times, you will hear Jesus use the term I am to describe who he really is. And that distinction or that name, I am, is extremely significant, and I'll tell you why. And we sang about it during the worship time. Maybe some of you will remember But way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, 
God appeared to a man by the name of Moses in a burning bush. Remember Moses? God said to Moses, Moses, I want you to pack your bags and get on the first flight back to Egypt. Because what I want you to do, Moses, is I want you, that's right, I want you to rescue my people. Now, in that little exchange with God, immediately Moses realized that wasn't going to be an easy assignment. So he politely declined the offer. He said, I don't think so, God. Send somebody else. But you know what? God was persistent. How many of you have found God to be that way? Very rarely does God take no for an answer, especially when he comes knocking on the door of your heart. And so he pressed Moses a little bit. And Moses said to God, look, I'm not saying yes. I'm not 100%. But let's just suppose that I accept this assignment. When I get to Egypt and I tell the Israelites that the God of their fathers has sent me to lead them and to rescue them, and they ask me, what is God's name? What am I going to tell them? What name are you going by these days, God? How do I respond to the people when they have questions about who you really are? And God said to Moses, I want you to tell them that I am has sent you. It's right in the Bible. That's right. You tell them that I am has sent you because I am who I am. You see, God fully believed that the leaders of his people, those who were paying attention anyway, would understand that terminology. Because Yahweh, the covenant name used for, Moses, uh, for, for God, the covenant name for God, used over 7,000 times in the Old Testament, comes from the two Hebrew words, I am. Yahweh means to exist or to bring into existence. And when God used that name, he was sure that his people would acknowledge him. And years and years later, in the Gospel of John, Jesus used the exact same terminology. And just like Jehovah God, Jesus, the Son of God, identified himself with the name I am. Again, scattered throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the door that leads to salvation. I am the vine. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And then the classic I am found in John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And finally, in John chapter 18, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few hours before his crucifixion, Judas showed up with a detachment of temple guards and soldiers to betray him. And Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, I am he. And as soon as he said that, as soon as he used that phrase, I am he, there was so much power in that name that all of the soldiers were knocked off their feet 
and they fell to the ground hard. You see, the gospel of John, the word of God, not me or some other passionate preacher, but it's the scripture that Jesus said would always remain and never pass away. It declares the divinity of Jesus. It tells us of a surety that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And John said, that's a key. You absolutely need to know that. You have to embrace and accept that truth. But you know, that was the single greatest controversy associated with the ministry of Jesus. In fact, that was the reason why the religious leaders hated him so much. The scribes and the Pharisees, they despised Jesus because he claimed to be God. And they just couldn't wrap their arms around that. When they analyzed everything, when, when, when they looked at Jesus and they listened to him and they read the scriptures and, and they tried to process it all, they just could not accept it. They could not believe that Jesus was telling the truth. They thought he was a fake. Oh, oh they thought he was a, a, a gifted man, a, a rabbi, a gifted man of God. They knew he was able to do some things well, but son of God, Messiah, just no way. Not a chance. In fact, look at John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33. <clears throat> at that time, the Feast of Dedication took, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade or the court of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I mean, give us the, the truth. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Could it get any clearer than that? One and the same. I'm one with the Father. I'm God. Next verse, then the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. This is the reason why the Pharisees and religious leaders hated Jesus so much. This is the reason why on many different occasions they attempted to stone him to death and to kill him. But he was able to escape. I don't know how, but somehow he was, he was able to slip right through their fingers. They just couldn't put him to death. They desperately tried on many different times, different occasions. This is why they had to finally turn him over to Pilate and have Pilate crucify him because they had no power, no authority over him. And they just couldn't believe his words. He said, I've 
told you plainly. I've made it clear to you. I've revealed the Father through many works, good works. But still, they couldn't grasp it. And what really messed the religious leaders up, what threw them off, was the humility and the gentleness of Jesus. He actually cared about people. He had a huge heart of compassion. And not only was it prophesied that he would be king, but that he would be a shepherd of God's people. And they just weren't used to that. That was not the image or the understanding of what promised Messiah was going to look like, act like, or behave like. You see, what they were expecting was a champion. They were hoping to see someone with enormous political influence and brazen military prowess. They wanted a warrior. Just like their beloved and highly esteemed and admired superhero. Guy by the name of David. King David. Now David was a legend. He's bigger than life. In fact, he was called by God to take on a giant with just a sling and a stone. And he killed the giant and what? Cut his head off. And that's what the Jewish leaders were expecting. Someone who would go into battle against the enemy and utterly destroy them. When David was in, in, in battle, the enemy didn't stand a chance. And so the religious leaders had this concept of Messiah, and they thought they had the Old Testament scripture to back them up. They had the words of the prophet, living proof that a warrior Messiah was on his way. Prophecies like Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king. A what? A king. The prophetic word says, I'm going to raise up a king, and this king will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And the Jewish leaders, when they read this prophecy and many others just like it, they interpreted it to mean that Messiah was going to follow in King David's footsteps. That he was going to be a commander-in-chief, a great military genius. One who would perform incredible exploits and feats just like David did, emulate the works of David. And their Messiah... Not the prophesied one, but the one that they had built up and created in their own minds. He was going to lead the charge. And he was going to overthrow the tyranny of Rome and the oppression that the people were facing. And he was finally going to set the people free. This is what they had in their minds. This was their hope. This was their expectation. But guess what? They were wrong. They were dead wrong. Because God had another plan. And they had no idea what that plan was. They had no clue what God was up to. The plan and strategy that God had in his mind was totally different than what they had in their minds. And yes, the Messiah was going to set the people free. But God was so much more interested 
in something so much greater than a political or an earthly freedom. He wanted to set the human race free from sin and from spiritual death. That was the purpose and the call that was placed upon Messiah. And that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. With his death, burial, and resurrection, he broke the power of sin. Friend, we needed this more than anything else. He broke the power of sin. The scripture says sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not slaves to sin. Sin doesn't any longer dictate our destiny. We don't have to fall victim to the same sin, the same failures, the same mistakes, the same wrong choices. Jesus destroyed all that. He destroyed sin on the cross. He defeated sin. And with his death, burial, and resurrection, he has now given us the promise of eternal life when this life is over. And John, the beloved, he could not wait to give us that news. He couldn't wait to communicate that truth to us. He didn't wait to John 21, 16 to tell us that. He told it to us in John 3, 16, as soon as he could. Again, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, believes that he is in fact the Messiah, the Christ, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now check this out. Listen very carefully. Taking care of future business, taking care of what would happen when this life is over, and establishing an eternity for us with the Father, going to heaven and preparing mansions for us like Jesus said he would do, was only a part of his job description. He was also commissioned by God to get us from this life to the next. Are you following that? Did you pick that up? You're a little quiet. Probably just thoughtful, right? So God didn't only send Jesus to be the finish line. And he is the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith, right? We're to keep our eyes on him. He's the, he's the end game. He's the finish line. And because of what he's able to do when we get to the end of our lives and we get to the finish line, we have the promise of eternal life forever and ever. But that wasn't his only assignment. God called him to help us throughout the whole race. Every time we go around the track, eyes on the finish line, but as long as we're lapping that track, he's with us. His other assignment was to get us from here to there. Regardless of what we go through, regardless of what we face, that means that he is with us each and every step of the way. And he cares what we go through. And he understands it. He experienced it all himself. And he promises that even when 
In this dark world, we go through tests and trials and pain and suffering and things that might not be fair. He's always with us. He's never going to abandon us. Check out John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. Just a few hours before his death, Jesus said to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor or comforter to help you and be with you, how long? Forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus said, I promise you, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not abandon you. In fact, I will never forsake you. I will come to you. I will make sure that there is a part of God inside of you to walk with you each and every step of the way. And how many of you know Jesus kept his word? He sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. He is always with us. We can always sense his presence. He's been faithful. He's never turned his back on us. Not one single time. And that should bring us a whole lot of comfort and assurance. We have a Savior, we have a Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, who finished the work for us so that when this life is over, we have the promise of being with God forever and ever, but he also takes us through this life. Not just the eternal consequence. He walks with us each and every day. Now, I'd like to tell you one last story and then we're going to bring the message to a close. This particular story, I'm sure you've heard it before. Many of you heard it multiple times. It takes place in the Old Testament. Just a short time after the nation of Israel was taken into captivity by a heathen nation called the Babylonians. And just prior to that happening, the nation of Israel, the people of God, decided to rebel against God and to disobey the laws and the commandments they they had been living by for years and years. The same commandments that God had passed down to them through Moses. And so they decided that they no longer wanted to follow the commands of God. They didn't want to surrender their lives to God. And so basically, they turned their back on God, decided to live life a, a different way. So what does God do? Out of his mercy, he raises up a bunch of prophets... And he sends the prophets to the people with a warning and with instruction to get back on track spiritually, to make their way back to God. Well, what do the people do? They just just disregarded the prophets. They didn't pay attention. They carried on business as usual. What does God do? Sends another wave of prophets. And then another wave. And keeps bringing words of warning and words of instruction to his people to surrender their hearts to God, but they refused to do it. So finally, in 586 B.C., a heathen king, king of Babylon, by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar, he marched on Jerusalem, he captured the holy city, he destroyed the temple of God. And living there in Babylon, in the place of captivity, three young Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they gained favor with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar really liked these three guys. 
And the reason he did, because not only did they do everything that was required of them, they did it with excellence. I mean, they went the extra mile. They put their whole heart and soul into everything the king asked them to do, even though they were servants in a strange country, in a strange place. They had been carried away into captivity. And the spirit of excellence was on these three men in such a powerful way that the king, even though they were Jewish and even though they were outsiders, he promoted them. They became leaders within his organization. He gave them authority in the palace. And they were actually telling some Babylonians what to do. Now, you have to know that King Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit on the narcissistic side. Uh, in fact, he was quite arrogant. And one day he decided to take a selfie. Or should I say he made a selfie. It was a big one. He made an image of himself. The scripture describes it as 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And this guy was so into himself that once he had this, this image made and he saw it, he fell in love with it. You know, some people like that. They just like looking at themselves. He was so crazy about himself that they came up with the Babylonian anthem and every time the song or the music would play under threat of death, that was the penalty, everyone in the entire kingdom had to what? Bow to the image and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what the king had everyone in the entire land doing, bowing to his image. Well, you know the story. These three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were loyal to the king. They did everything the king required of them. But guess what? They were a little bit more devoted to Jehovah God. And in their heart, they obeyed the laws and the commands that God had given to Moses. See, there was still a remnant, a group of people that were still locked in. And even though, for the most part, the nation disobeyed God, there were some that still were keyed in on God. But even though these three did everything that was asked of them, they knew that the law said they were not to bow down or worship any false gods other than Jehovah. And so one day, when the music was playing, and everybody else hit the ground and kissed Nebuchadnezzar's feet, these three Jewish men remain standing. They refuse to bow down to that image or to that culture. And of all the rotten luck, someone snitched on them. Someone called it in. And they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And they were accused of refusing to bow. And when King Nebuchadnezzar saw who it was, he was disappointed he was highly upset because he loved these three guys. They were like his top three guys. And he said, hey, what's going on? You're making me look bad. Why are you defying my orders? He said, I'm going to hit the repeat one last time. And if you get down on your knees right here, right now, all's going to be forgiven and forgotten. I, I'm not going to worry about anything. We'll just carry on with business as usual. But you've got to bow right now. And if you don't, I have no choice but to execute you on the spot. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to throw you in the fire. I, am, I have a furnace ready. And if you don't get down on your knees right now and bow to me, that's where you're going. And these three guys, 
you got to love them. They said, long live the king. We serve God, Jehovah God. And he is able to rescue us from your hand. The God we serve, he has the power to save us from any trouble. But even if, even if he doesn't, if he chooses to go in a different direction and he does not rescue us from the fire and we're burned to a pulp, we want you to know, O king, we will never, never worship you. Oh, as you can imagine, he was infuriated. And the king immediately gave the order to execute these three boys. So let's pick up the story here in Daniel chapter 3, verses 20 through 25. I could have finished the story on my own, but I wanted you to see it in the scripture. Then Nebuchadnezzar commanded certain men, mighty men of valor, who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, four men walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Who did the fourth man look like? You know, I've heard this story preached countless times. And I would say after, uh, over the past 30 years, I have probably used this story in sermons of my own at least a half a dozen times. And whenever we tell this story, whenever we read it, we typically focus in on the three Jewish rock stars. And we normally talk about the faith that they displayed when they said to the king, our God is able to rescue us. Our God, our God can save us from your hand. Our God has that power. Our God has that kind of authority. We're not at all concerned about it because our God, he knows how to meet our needs. But even if he doesn't, O oh king, even if he's not available this time around to save us, we still will not bow. How I many know oh, that's pretty impressive? It takes boldness to say that to the king. But you know, as we bring this message to a close, instead of focusing our attention on the efforts and the faith and the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I want to draw your attention to the fourth man. Because that's the one we've been talking about all morning. Now, when you've read this story in the past, or even now when we read these verses together, I don't know 
who in your mind the fourth man is. Was it an angel? An illusion? Was it a figment of Nebuchadnezzar's imagination? If you ask me, hands down, it's Jesus. No doubt in my mind. And now we're talking about John's Jesus, the gospel of John's Jesus, the son of God Jesus. And he was there in the fire doing everything that he told us he would do. Be with us, regardless of what we face and regardless of what we go through. Even when we find ourselves in the fight of our lives, we have the fourth man. And he's standing next to us. And he knows exactly what we're going through. And so, Father, in these closing moments, we pray for our eyes to be open. Lord, that's been our, our prayer for the last month. We've been talking about having vision, like the blind man. We want to see, Lord. We want to see. We want to understand. We want to have spiritual perception and insight. And Lord, I'm asking that you would do something so powerful and so unique in these closing moments that, Lord, it would cause us to be different in the way that we live and in the way that we act and behave. Lord, something has to give. Something has to change. The church has to shift slightly, Lord. We can't keep going through the same motions, doing the same things. You're asking us to make a shift, to make a change. And it starts with understanding and knowing who Jesus is. He's not just a good man, not just another teacher, not just another holy rabbi, someone who did some good things, someone who went down in history and we're still talking about him. The Gospel of John declares to us that he is the Christ, the Messiah, our fourth man. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister that truth to each and every one of us. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.